Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and if you get a Bible from us, it's going to be page 478. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The guys will get you a copy, and uh, page 478. Uh, We are in week six of what will be a a 10-week series titled Faithful. And uh, it's, it's overarching, as always, the main character is God. But we're also looking at the life of, of two men, ancient times, uh, Joseph. So we did that by looking at Genesis 37 through 50. And then Daniel, as we look at the first six chapters uh, in the book of Daniel, written by Daniel. And they're, they're the study of kind of looking at Daniel's life. In both of these, uh, we see men who have triumphed. And we're in the midst of triumphing in the middle of moral and and spiritual corruption in the culture around them. And so we try to say, listen, that's certainly the world we live in. Uh, We live at a time that is more and more becoming blatantly in opposition to the very things that that we believe, that we hold fundamental. And and, and you and I live at a time, by the way, just so you know, obviously we make these studies long before Obamacare was an issue. So this is some response to something this week. But just to, to the gradual, obviously, open hostility to you see to your faith and, and that you see to common sense. This is, I sent myself three emails this week, and they were stories that, are, that were in the news, and I don't want to read them, but this is one. And this is, just, this, this is how goofy things have gotten. Here's the headline. New trend, new trend, Jim's banning gyms, G-Y-M-S, gyms banning slim clients to foster comfort for overweight patrons. And as you read about this, it's what they're saying is gyms now are kind of saying, we're not interested particularly in fit people here, which I, apparently you're just working yourself out of a job, I guess, because once you get fit, they want you. But we've reached this point of lunacy in the culture where, where we prefer, this is, this is the ultimate demise, okay? This is not new, by the way. We prefer accolades over achievement. We'd really have you tried real hard rather than you won. My, my grandson, who's four, is intense and competitive. And, and it can be, you know, sometimes over, like the late, we're at breakfast one day, and breakfast comes at the same time, and he said, I know I can eat my breakfast faster than you. And I said, hey, little man, that's not the issue. So he went to see his cousin Reagan in a, in a, uh, a little ballet recital last week. And it drove him nuts that nobody won. Who won? Did she win that thing that you? No. Okay. So you got to. But we're in a culture. You're in a culture that's lost not just moral compass, but 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 soft. It's a culture that's grown very soft. That that is much more concerned about accolades and that you tried hard than you succeeded. And, and the culture continues now to be driven by the by concern for for the weakest. Not, not, ju- not just weak in terms of, the, but weak in terms of resolve. And so you, you face all sorts of things around you that I think are, are just, again, living with me is not particularly fun because I believe every, every silver lining has a cloud and I'm determined to find it. So, <laughs> so that's just the world you live in. That's the world you live in. But on a much bigger scale than what they do at the gym is, is by the way, how about my baseball Wildcats? I mean, I, you know, I've been on board a long time. As you all know, I don't really care 
but I love to say to the guys from ASU, it's good to have a champion back in the state again. So, uh, <laughs> trust me, it doesn't matter. But, but you live in a time, particularly when you get to issues like moral issues and spiritual issues, where you and I stand really in opposition to the culture around us. There'll be times where you get the head bob that says yes, but, but you're going to find yourself like this, just like Daniel. That's the whole point of this study. Just like Daniel, who's living in a secular, humanist society. I was going to talk about it today, but I just thought maybe next week we'll talk a little more about that. Let me remind you what we saw in chapter 1. Daniel and his friends are living in Jerusalem when Jerusalem is conquered by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar takes the king and the king's family and some of the royalty and some of the, the key people. It appears even people who had potential, especially among the young men, and takes them back to Babylon. So we meet these boys. They're 14, 15, 16 years old. And, and we see them in remarkable men. Uh, they're living in a foreign land. Uh, all of their support structure is gone. It's a secular land that's in Dark contrast and opposition to, to their beliefs. Uh, their identities are taken away from them. Their names are changed, all in an effort of trying to take these who were the best and brightest of these little boys from Judah, take these guys and assimilate them into a culture. They stand in opposition to the force of the king, and they're clearly under spiritual attack. And what do you do in moments like that? We said chapter 1, verse 8. Verse 8 is the key verse. Daniel made up his mind, uh, determined. Daniel resolved. Daniel Campbell wrote this about Daniel, the subject of our study. Daniel could discern the fact that the Babylonian culture was in conflict with the word of God. And Daniel had the maturity and moral courage to say a firm no to cultural pressures. Involved in this is the clear implication that Daniel was a keen student of the scriptures and he had the ability to apply what he knew to the problems of everyday life. And that's our goal. Our goal is to study the word of God so we know the God of the word and to understand how that God would have us live. So the little, what would Jesus do? Cute, clever, but that really isn't the issue. The issue is what would Jesus have you do? How do you take this and then bring it forward, in this case, these lessons and principles that are timeless, bring them forward 2,500 years and apply them to your life today. And we said in a practical way, one of the things we saw with Daniel last week is as the, the force and the demands came against him and he had his conviction, he, 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 he tried and, and it worked for him to find a middle ground. He didn't cave in, nor did he dig in his heels and say, well, this is cultural war, we're going to die on every hill. But he went to the guy over him. He went to the, to the king's uh, official that was over him, Aspenash, and he says, listen, here's a problem. You're telling me I've got to eat this food, and I'm telling you I've determined I'm not going to do that. And the, king said, well, and the king's official said, the end of verse 10, here's the problem. If all of a sudden you don't eat this and the king can see it, I will. I love this. Then, then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. In other words, <laughs> And Daniel said, well, I don't want to do that. Maybe there's a win-win here. Because I understand what you're concerned about. But, but I want you to understand my concern. And, and Ashpenaz says, I really don't care whether you defile yourself or not. I care about me. And Daniel said, well, let's do this then. 
for 10 days, just give us vegetables and water, and, and let's see if you can tell at the end of those 10 days. And they did this test, and they couldn't. In fact, Daniel and his friends were even, fat, I don't know how this happens, even fatter than the other guys. And not only this, uh, God blessed them. God blessed them, verse 17, and, he, and we're still in chapter 1, and he gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. They're obedient, God blesses. They're obedient, God blesses. And he gives them intelligence and wisdom, so much so that verse 19, where the king tested them, he found them better than everyone else, 10 times better. And so when we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 2, it appears the boys have ended this uh, education and training period, and they're now in the personal service. They've graduated. They're in the personal service of Nebuchadnezzar, the king. They're one of the group, if you look at chapter 2, verse 2, they're one of the group of the magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, the Chaldeans. They're, they're part of the king's cabinet. Now, an inner circle, and that's a pretty big circle, I think. But they're part of that. They've, they've, they've graduated. Now, to Daniel was given, as it was the other boys, look at, again, back at chapter seven, or 1, verse 17 for a second. These four youths, Daniel and his three boys, were given, were given knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And that becomes front and center in our study today. Chapter 2, verse 1, the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and, and his sleep left him. One of the paraphrases says this, he was disturbed deeply and couldn't sleep. Now, that's almost a universal experience for, for various reasons. For, for me to try to, and this is just me, for me to try to sleep on Saturday night is a waste. I mean, last night's a perfect example. I, I sat up uh, waiting for Sandy to come home so I could take care of some stuff that she needed. Got that done. I went in with a bit of total waste of time. I lay there, I toss. I lay there, I toss. I lay there, I toss. I drift. I wake up. And, may, may, and then I get up four. So may, maybe. I got an hour and a half sleep, maybe. And that's just like a Saturday night. That's like every Saturday night. And then some nights, and, and that's in anticipation of today. Do I have this right? I'm always a little bit insecure when I'm teaching a narrative. I find those hard for me to teach. Don't know that I do a particularly good job with them. So I've got all of that. Does that fit there? How's this work over here? What about this? And then always, how much time is it? So you've had it too. Maybe something at work. Maybe a crisis in, in, in family. Here you go. Maybe husband and wife. Same bed, boy, but we're not sharing the same hearts right now. Maybe a kid, maybe something at work. It may be something that you dreamt. And maybe even like Nebuchadnezzar, you couldn't remember it. So, so that's kind of a universal human condition. What makes Nebuchadnezzar's troublesome dream unique is that this dream was given to him by God. We've said all along, this book, book of Daniel, but this book, the Bible, is a book that, that demonstrates to us the sovereignty of God. This is all about God. It's about God creating and our sin and, and, then, and then God coming along and is a story then of, of 
redemption. It's a story of God bringing things back together again, restoration. God is the central figure. God is the one who gave these young men their their health and their intelligence and, and, and their influence and all that goes with it. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. We are later going to learn the contents of the dream, but if you will, under the topic line or subject line, it's simply about the future. And, And what this dream tells us is that God not only knows the future and created the future, he controls the future. That we need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God, that he is the God that reigns. And we're curious about the future, and, 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 and I always find two things interesting about the future. Number one, it typically shows us how impotent we really are in things. To predict it, so that we're all the experts, doesn't matter really, and it, this is not about Obamacare, okay? We're all the experts who predicted this is how the court's going to rule, and even the ones that said it'll be five to four, and five to four, four, didn't have Roberts there, so they, they, we didn't do very well. We periodically try to predict the outcome of a game, and it doesn't work that way. We try to understand the economy and the things around because they know they affect us. I have a, one of the studies I do with this kind of curmudgeon old guy. I love him. He's an ex-stockbroker, and he came in Thursday, and he said, I had a great week. He said, I bought, I bought this J.P. Morgan stock, and in a day, it went up a buck and something, but just... That night, Wednesday night, a leak, accurate or inaccurate, said that the projected losses for J.P. Morgan weren't going to be $2 billion, but $9 billion. And he said, I lost my buck and a quarter plus another buck and a half. We're not very good at that. And we're curious about our own personal dreams. Uh, Will I get married? Who will I marry? Where will I live? Will I work? What will be my future? How long will I live? Well, what we learn in the scripture, what we learn over and over and over again in the book of Daniel, is that the God is the king of all things, including the future. That he knows all things. I brought the, this mug, and I don't know, I don't think I got a name on who left this for me. But this was just on my desk one day. And inside you can see kind of a label tape, and it said Tom's Oprah Cup. And, and this is a result of, of my 14 million times quoting Oprah, and, it's, and it says it on here, it says, things happen for a reason. Okay? So isn't that what Oprah says all the time? Not just Oprah, but I, but I, I pick Oprah because she's, I, I'm going to leave it here so I remember to pick it up on the way out, uh, uh, because she's kind of iconic that, that, that it is odd to be in a world where not just Oprah, but so many people say it, people who believe in evolution and accidents kind of believe that somehow everything happens for a reason, and I believe that's nothing more than kind of self-medication to try to make you feel a little bit better. Because if everything is an accident and evolution and all these things are true, then, then for everything to happen for a reason, there has to be someone in control, somebody orchestrating things. And what the Bible tells us is God is sovereign, Now, for 22 years, we've done an awesome, amazing job at East Valley Bible Church, Redemption Church, of teaching the sovereignty of God as it relates to our salvation. But I want to make sure we don't stop there. It's the sovereignty of God in all matters, that that God is all-knowing and all-powerful so that his will will be done. 
That there's no maverick molecule that can usurp his plan that's somehow loose in the, in the, in the universe. It doesn't exist. That, that God is all-knowing, and they would have to be both, frankly, and all-powerful. That he controls the universe. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. In, in verse 20, he said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. So scientists tell us, I lose interest like this in the discussion, that, that the universe is growing, 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 growing. Okay? Well, how, uh, what's that mean to us? Well, if we believe God created it, the universe, then we're beginning to see how, how big he really is. Is there life on other planets? I don't know. I think it'd be cool if there isn't. I mean, I, I don't know. I hear we've been visited by other planets. I hear that stuff all the time, but I don't ever see it. Other than I started watching swamp people. And, and, and so maybe, perhaps. Or there's a couple of new shows. Redneck Vacations, have you seen that? Wow. Tell me this is staged. Okay, so maybe, but, but wouldn't, wouldn't it be cool if it's true that there is not life anywhere else in the universe, which is God's way of saying, look at how big I am. Oh, FYI, and how small you are. But how deep my love must be for you, because in this vast universe, I love you, chose you, and I sent my son to die so that you all might have eternal life. And the whole point of that and of the mysteries and the prophecies and all that we're going to look at today, the whole point of that is to provide comfort to you, to remind you of who you are, remind you of who he is. What this future has in it mysteries, and periodically God grants us a glimpse into the future through prophecy. We see it through the Old Testament. Jesus gives it. He says, I must suffer, die, rise again. The last book of this Bible is called the book of, of Revelation, and it's about that. Revelation that Jesus gave to the Apostle John. So, so we get that. We see that. God does this periodically, and this is one of those occasions. We're in Daniel chapter 2, and, and the point is made like three, four, five times here. Verse 19 the mystery is revealed to Daniel. Verse 22, it is God who reveals the profound and hidden things. Verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Uh, verse 47, there is this God who's the God of gods and the Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. Um, a mystery is something that's unknown, but periodically, some of your translations, by the way, may say secrets, but it's something that to this point God has hidden, but now decides to reveal. So Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. He doesn't remember it. It troubles him. So he does what a king like this would do. He calls in his best and his brightest and all of his cabinets and he tells them, listen, verse 3, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And so then they say, well, let's go through the normal procedure. You tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. And he said, well, I have a problem here this time. Okay, I don't know the dream. The king said in verse 5, this is the command for me. If you don't make known to me the dream, 
You have to tell me what the dream is. And the interpretation, and this is his management style. Okay? You'll be torn limb from limb, and your house will be made a rubbish heap. If you declare it, verse 6, it's the opposite. You're going to get a reward. So tell me the dream and tell me what it means. And so the second time they said, listen, this isn't good. You can't do this. You tell us the dream. We'll give you the interpretation. And the king said, I, don't, I know you're bargaining for time. Make the dream known to me. If you don't, all of these things are going to happen. They're going to take place. You're going to be in trouble. You're lying. You're corrupt. Tell me the dream. Now, apparently, I, here, this is just me. I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar has gone to the thing and said, you know what, that's interesting, because they keep telling me what these dreams mean, but if they can't tell me what the dream was, how do I know the interpretation was real? The other side of this is, it appears he can't remember what the dream is, so I'd make one up. Oh, there was this, and he'd go, really? I don't remember that. Oh, you were in a deep sleep. So, so I mean, that was the thing they go on. But apparently these guys are not as clever or devious, apparently, as I am. And so they're hard-pressed. Now, look at what they say, because this is profoundly true. Verse 10. There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician or conjurer of Chaldean. This is uncharted waters, unprecedented no king, no, no king in battle, no king ever has asked this. There's nobody who could possibly do it. Moreover, beyond all of that, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling place is not within mortal flesh. Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 11 this way. You're asking, what you're asking is impossible unless some god or goddess should reveal it to us. This is perfect. And they don't hang around with people like us. <laughs> it's the same thing that we saw. There's so much of an overlap. There's some nuanced difference. But so much of an overlap between this and our study with Joseph. Joseph declares to, to Pharaoh, Joseph declares over and over, I, God's the one who gives dreams. God's the one who interprets. What these guys say is exactly right. It, it, it is fascinating to, to see that approach, not just played out in old times, but we see it today. It's kind of this idea of God <coughs> that he wound this whole thing up and then walked away. There was a very popular song years ago called From a Distance. And then it was all about what things look like from a distance. From a distance, the world looks blue and green and the snow-capped white mountains from a distance and the oceans meet the stream and the angel, I'm sorry, the eagles fly. From a distance, this is what it looked like. But then the verse is, God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us. What? From a distance. And there's this idea that there's this God, but he's, a, he's kind of an unknown God. He's a removed God. He's a distant God. Let, let me give you something that is radically different. I'll go back to step one, to the mug. Everything happens for a reason. I believe that. And, and, and everything that happens is caused by or allowed by a sovereign God. 
who not only knows all things, but can do all things. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. That's why he's sovereign. That's why he's in control. That's why he does as he pleases. But he's not a distant God. (coughs) He's a God who's intimately, personally involved with us. Go back to what we talked about a couple of minutes ago. There is this infinite God who took void and nothingness and created the universe. He rules it today. And yet, this, is, this gets into kind of like mind-blowing area, that vast, huge, all-knowing, all-powerful God indwells me. <laughs> it's amazing. And you? He's not a distant God. Sees the sparrow fall, has the hairs in your head counted. He knows everything you've ever said, everything you're going to say. You know the drill. He knows all of those things. There was a book that was very popular in the culture probably about 25 or 30 years ago. And what became alarming is it became popular among Christian circles. In fact, there were ever, even a few prominent Christian leaders who endorsed the book. <coughs> it was called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And I don't remember. And we go... I, I know I'm really close, but I think it was chapter 7. But one of the chapter titles was, God can't do everything, but he can do some very important things. And, and what happened, the premise of this book, and I get it, it's born out of tragedy. It's born out of one man's, one rabbi's experience where his son is killed, and he's trying to bring reason to it, and I get it. But what so often suffering does is take our theology and twist it so somehow it seems like in this quest to spare God's reputation, we go, oh, well, he couldn't do anything about it. We believe that God either causes or allows everything. If that's not true, he's not God. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. He doesn't owe me an explanation. He is the God who creates. And yet in the vastness of that is the intimacy we can have with him. He is knowable, not completely because he's infinite, we're finite. He's knowable and has a desire to be known to his people. So, in fact, one of the things that the Spirit of God does when the Spirit of God indwells us is to take this word and open it up to us. So formally, 1 Corinthians 2.14, formally as natural people, we couldn't understand spiritual things, but now we can. So these guys got it right. <coughs> when they said to Nebuchadnezzar, it's the gods. What they got wrong is there is a God. Because of this, the king became indignant and furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. He said, okay, that's it, you're done. So the decree went forth, verse 13, and the wise men... I'm having, an, I'm having one of my, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a heart patient. <laughs> I'm having one of my episodes, apparently. This is how it is. Did you see that, too? Tell me you saw that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. Yes, really? Saw what there? The decree went forth. They said, all right, and it's Daniel's death warning, verse 13. And Daniel replied with discretion and discernment, and he went to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men, and he said uh, to the king's commander, for what reason is this decree from the king so urgent? Ariok told Daniel, here's what's going on. And Daniel went in, 
verse 16. And, and to me, maybe I don't think impetuous youth. Daniel at this point, by the way, remember what we said? Is that when they came over, the boys were probably 14, 15. So now Daniel's 18, 19. Now we need to point out, <laughs> we need to point out that a, a 14-year-old in that culture was different than our, our 14-year-olds. And, and, and a young man, a man was a man at 14 or 15. You just have an alarming thing. <clears throat> you, you have this. I, <laughs> I, I talked to different members of our pastoral team and, and, the, and the teams at the other campuses, and they will just tell you it is just alarming, uh, the immaturity and lack of progression of, of young men. There, there's some of me, and I, man, I don't even want to get in that because then you'll just you'll be all over me. But, but some of you are doing your kids no favor. Listen, when, they, when the boys... First of all, when he's 22 or 3, but he's 24, 25, 26, and he still wants to bring his laundry home to you, mommy, and have you do his laundry and cook his meals, the best thing you can do is throw these kids out in their can and tell them to get a job. Get four or five other derelicts like them and get a $2 a month apartment and let them live together. I mean, at some point, and I don't know what it is, but at some point, you got to grow up. And, 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 and anyway, that, I digress. But, 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 but they're different, okay? And to me, it's really alarming. One of the things we see in the church, we see a ton of beautiful, spiritually mature girls, and we say, where are the guys in reality? They just aren't around. They're playing video games with their friends. So, anyway, I digress. But, but, but Daniel, and I don't think he's being impetuous. I think, I think he's saying, I have a lot of confidence in God. Because he knows what the boys up here said is true, that, that there is a God who can give interpretation. And Daniel's going to wait for him. Verse 17, then Daniel went to the house, his house and informed his friends, that would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his other three, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from God of heaven concerning the mysteries, so that Daniel and his friends would, be, would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, so I want to make a, a couple of op, observations. One of what Daniel appears to have in place, and then two, his approach to it. It appears that though these circumstances are extraordinary, Daniel was able to go back and to just plug in to, an, if you will, an existing support structure around him. It wasn't crisis management. He didn't have to say, gosh, I wonder if I can get a team together. He went back to his house, and he seemed to have these guys in place. So what you and I need to understand, and I think we do, is that we weren't designed to live this life in a vacuum. Life in general is spiritual life. Now, I, I mentioned this book to you last week, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting together different things to take with me and read for summer and blah, 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 blah. And I mentioned this book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Tolian Trevigian, who is, and I'm sure this kid is sick of hearing this, Billy Graham's grandson, uh, he took over at Coral Ridge Presbyterian after D. James Kennedy, so he inherited a mess and somehow is still breathing, and he's a visiting professor of theology at Reform Seminary. And I said to you, I really like this book. And, and so I also said that I asked Aaron to get a couple cases, and they're over in the bookstore, so if you're looking for a book to pick up and a book to read, just be a good one. And I think there's probably a, a dozen or so of them left over there, maybe a few more. Part of the reason I like it is because he agrees with me, okay? But one of the things he talks about in here is accountability groups. So we need community, 
But my fear is that we have these accountability groups. And rather than have me rant about them, let me just read you what Tolian says. At different times in my life, I've been part of what's called an accountability group. You know the ones I'm talking about where you and a small group of friends arrange a time each week to get together and to pick each other apart, uncovering layer after layer after layer of sin. All parties involved believe that the guiltier we feel, the holier we are. You confess your sin to your friends, but it's never enough. No matter what you unveil, they're always looking for you to uncover something deeper, darker, even more embarrassing than what you fessed up to. It's usually done with such persistent invasion that you get the feeling that they're desperately looking for something in you that will make them feel better about themselves. Well, I hate those groups, he writes. The reason I hate these kind of groups described above is that they're focused primarily, if not exclusively, on our sin, not on our Savior. Because of this, these groups breed self-righteousness, guilt, and almost irresistible temptation to pretend to be less than honest. I can't tell you how many times I've been in accountability groups where there's been little or no attention given to the gospel. There's never the reminder of what Christ has done for our sin, cleansing us from guilt, and, and, and the power that we have, and the resources that are ours by virtue of our union with him. These groups produce a, quote, do more, try harder moralism that robs us of the joy and freedom Jesus paid dearly for us. Now, once you say these things, <laughs> you, got, you got to go back and clean it up. And we did. I've learned that. To be sure, we're called to mortify, that put to death the flesh, and, and the misdeeds of our body, to cut off our hand, gouge out our eyes. But we need the help of others to do this. The sin that gives rise to our sinful behavior is a preoccupation with ourselves. That's the root of sin that needs to be mortified. That's the under-the-surface sin that gives birth to our misdeeds. The first sin that needs to be rooted out and attacked is not moral behavior. It's immoral belief, the belief that my Christian life is all about my morals and my spiritual progress. And that's what happens. And that's, I'm totally agreeing that you need people around you. I, I just think some of them, and, I just, and maybe it's a weakness in me, so I was really glad to read that because apparently it's a weakness in him as well, is to go, some of these groups have just digested. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you really doing? Okay. Well, until about, let's say, five seconds ago, I was fine. Now... I want to hit you in the face. I mean, now I want to, I mean, and I got it, and I want to be careful, and, we can, you know, some of that is pride. But, but here, here's what Tozer said long ago. Self is bad. Whether I'm talking in a way that's self-degrading or it's self-aggrandizement, it doesn't matter. In either case, I'm talking about myself. Yeah, we want to acknowledge sin. We want to talk about sin. But all of a sudden, it is so easy for us to fall into a self-righteous, pharisaical way of saying, i got to do this, stop doing this, and it becomes all of me rather than saying, no, here's the forgiveness I have in Christ. Now, what we just talked about right there for three minutes is grace. And every time we talk about grace, it gets very, very, very sloppy. This is not about me being strong. This is about him being strong. One of the songs that you sang, if you're in the conference center, we'll sing and you're in the chapel, it has a verse that says, all I need is you. Every hour, all I need is you. And there's a great line in one of the verses. When I can't stand, I'll fall on you. You're all I need. And that's the truth. 
It's the mystery of the Christian life. He's the vine. We're the branches. We hang in. He produces this. Daniel has these guys around, but they're there to build each other up. Not, not this, this chronicle self-examination that says, no, got to get worse and worse and worse. That's one. Two, look at what Daniel does. They get together in verse 17, and, and, and they, verse 18, pray. Verse 19, the mystery is revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Wait a minute. What's, what's, what's Daniel doing in verse 19? He's sleeping. It's this, this kind of wonderful principle is that it, it makes no sense for us to do what only God can do, and it makes no sense for us to wait for God to do something we can do. <clears throat> so God, here's what God's going. Daniel's going, okay, they got it right. The revelation of this comes from God. Me staying up all night, walking in the woods, thinking it, it isn't going to make any difference. I can't figure it out. God does this. And if God's going to reveal it, he'll reveal it. Oh, maybe in a dream. So, so I, this can go both ways, and I get it. But there are just certain things that only God can do. So you busting your pick for this is a waste of time. But there's other things that God says, no, you can do this, you do them. And in the midst of this, what Daniel realized when he went to the king with the request, and here, is that time can be an ally. So we often speak of time as though it's this precious commodity that's dripping away, and it is. I understand. Time is running out. My biological clock is ticking. You don't have forever. That's true. But time also provides us, periodically, the opportunity to heal. Time heals all wounds. The opportunity to step back and clear our head and reflect and, and regroup and all the things that we talk about and all that goes with it. I was watching a cooking show, which is amazing to me because I don't cook. I watch home improvement shows. I don't improve homes. I, I watch cooking shows. I don't cook. I watch all these things. I'm watching this cooking show, and this guy is taking this steak. He's making this steak. <clears throat> and he says, right here is where almost everyone stops cooking because the steak is sort of done. I'm going to leave it on two more minutes and seal in the juices. Time. And Daniel goes, okay, we got time. Let's see what happens. And here's what happens. Daniel goes to sleep, and God reveals the dream to him. Now, we'll get at what the dream is, but let me ask you, what would be your first reaction in a moment like that? Let me tell you what mine would be. I would wake up. I'd have the dream. I'd go, aha. I would sprint to the palace, and I would say, I believe Nebuchadnezzar wants to see me. They are busy tell him I need to see him. And I would get in and I would go, <laughs> Neb, can I call you Neb? <laughs> you are one lucky king. Why? Well, Neb, you have me in your kingdom. And I know what the dream means. You'd do that too, wouldn't you? Yes, you would, you little lion. <laughs> After you confess that you're a lying puke, you would do that. <laughs> Daniel doesn't do that. It's amazing to me what Daniel does. 
And Daniel seems to be, and I have written, I don't know where this came from, because it was written in this Bible, and I don't remember teaching Daniel before out of this Bible, but it said, I am, I am frequently in awe of God, but never surprised by him. And it's like Daniel's in awe of God, but he isn't surprised. So you know what he does? He breaks out really into praise. He begins to pray. He takes the time to literally to thank God. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. Why? For wisdom and power belong to him. It's him who changes time. It's him who removes kings. It's him who establishes kings. It's him who's sovereign. John Calvin wrote this. Whenever God confers any remarkable blessing on his servants, they are more stirred up to praise him. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, then I need to count my many blessings, count them one by one. And I tend to be an ungrateful person. I I tend to rarely thank God with, with vigor for my health, but I pray when I'm sick to be healed. And I see it over and over again. And, and here's what Calvin's saying, and I think it's exactly true. When I understand, when God, let me read it again, when God confers remarkable blessings on his servant, and if I come back and go, really, any blessing from God is a remarkable blessing, then my heart is going to be stirred for praise. I'm going to sing songs that, that say, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you. I'm going to really mean it. I'm going to understand these amazing truths, and my life's not going to be filled with some sort of self-righteous pride, but but it's going to be exactly John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. He's everything, I'm nothing. And then this isn't some low self-esteem issue. It's a reality of the truth. Daniel doesn't, doesn't go, Daniel goes, God, thank you. You're the God of power, and I praise you in the midst of it. I praise you for your wisdom and your power. Uh, A.D.F. Tozier, uh, in, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, writes this. He said, the idea of God as an infinitely wise God is at the root of all truth. Wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends in a perfect means. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. That's God. That's God's plan. Yeah, just keep reading. Verse 23. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. We don't. We can't see this. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. You have given me. So he starts with this macro view. He says, this is who you are, but look at what you've done. You've given to me wisdom and power, and even now you've made known to me what we requested of you. God, you've answered my prayer. You've made known to me the king's matters. You are an awesome God. And it's not just something for Daniel. I got that Daniel has this ability to interpret these dreams. But here's what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all treasures of knowledge and wisdom. That, that again, we go back to 1 Corinthians 2.14. Natural man doesn't get spiritual things, but all of a sudden now, you and I have Christ in us. We have the ability to see things. I like to define wisdom, this is my definition, of the ability to connect the dots, the ability to see the forest and the trees. 
to begin to look at life around us and maybe not understand each specific circumstance, but always under thing is everything is under the jurisdiction of God, his grace, his mercy. He is an awesome, holy, mighty God who rules the kingdoms of the earth, who holds everything into place, and who desires to have an intimate personal relationship with his people. And you can know him. As I said before, not completely because he's infinite, you're finite, but you can know him and know about him and, and know the complexities and begin to see life as, a, as it really is. He goes to Arioch and he asks to see the king and he's hurried into the king's presence. He said, Arioch goes into the king and says, verse 25, I found a man from among the exiles of Judah can interpret the dream. And the king said to Daniel, named Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dreams which I have seen and interpreted? Now, make sure you understand what he's saying. The king is saying, can you do this? Here's what I would say. <laughs> Daniel says, no. Verse 27, as for the mystery about which you, the king, have inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, diviners, we can't declare it. Here's the king with all the resources. He's talked about rewards and accolades and all the things that go with it, all the praise and everything that goes with it. This is all your, this can all be yours. Can you interpret the dream? No. Verse 28. However, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you're on your bed. He said, no, I can't explain these dreams, but there's a God in heaven who gives these dreams, and he gives these interpretations, and it's not about the God or goddesses uh, 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 that are out there in the future. There are gods or goddesses that are there in the present. That's what this is all about. He's a great God. He's a holy God. He's a perfect God. And he said, I'm going to make known this to you. I'm going to reveal this to you. I've seen this. I've heard this. But don't for a second mistake and think it's me. There is a God who's made this known to me. Verse 30, this God has revealed this mystery to me. He hasn't revealed it because of the wisdom residing in me. This is like to going back and, 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 and reinforce the earlier point. Here's what he's saying. Yes, there's a God who's revealed it. Yes, he's revealed it to me. But let me say it again. Let me underline it. Let me put, let, let me put exclamation points. Not because of me. It's not that God revealed this. I don't want you to. Yes, he did it. Yes, he gave it to me, but it's like Daniel saying, I want to make sure you don't give me any praise for this. He didn't give it to me because I'm something special. I'm watching one day Herschel Walker, and he is accepted. He's being, I think he's being uh, um, inducted into the uh, University of Georgia Bulldog uh, Hall of Fame. And he said, I want to thank God because everything I accomplished is from him. And, and then he didn't do what a lot of people do, and then talk about what they did. Now, one day, I'm down at La Paloma, I'm teaching, and I'm at a red light coming out onto Ina, and Herschel was staying at La Paloma, and Herschel was running. This was early in the morning. And Herschel had on shorts, no shirt, shorts and shoes. Okay? Wow. 
His thighs, and this is big, are like my waist. He is this massive creature. But you know what? Now, he maintained that. He's steward of it. I can go the other way and go, here's Marcus Dupree, who had the same body but just ate his way into oblivion. Okay? But I can go, listen, he stewarded that. That's a gift. But, but Herschel's smart enough to know, I didn't deserve that body. I look at LeBron and I go, he's good and all that. But do you think, I mean, honestly, let's be honest. Do you think he and I are born with the same ability or opportunity? One of the things that screwed this country up that we're in is God granted us the pursuit of happiness. He didn't guarantee happiness. And while we're all equal and we are, we aren't all the same. You can see yesterday, I'm watching the boys play basketball. They're six, seven, and eight. Some of these boys are awesome. Some of these boys, it ain't never going to happen. They were just born that way. And it's really easy to somehow confuse and take that gift and say, I got the gift, but look at Why wouldn't you give it to me? I'm pretty special. I love Dan. He just strips all of this away. So he tells him about the dream, and you can read about it, but I'll give you the highlights. He talks about kingdoms. Verse 36, he talks about the kingdom of gold, the head. It's Babylon. And in a biblical sense, these kingdoms are prototypes of earthly kingdoms. And then there's the kingdom of the Mers, the Medes and the Persians. And then there's the, the kingdom of the Greeks, under primarily the direction, at least initially, of Alexander the Great. And then the Romans. And he talks about these earthly kingdoms. And there seems to be a progression in this, and, and different authors get carried away. And, and you can go and you can, you can read them. And what I just gave you is kind of the general breakdown. But... But, but there seems to be a progression of weaknesses of these empires. And then along comes, in verse 44, a divine kingdom. In those days, those kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will, it will crush and put in all these other kingdoms. There's this kingdom that's coming. It's the kingdom of God. And it will destroy all the kingdoms, the Babylonian kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the kingdom of Germany, China, Brazil, the United States. All those kings pass away. There's a perfect kingdom. Jesus said, here I am. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus comes. He says, now, here's the beginning of this new kingdom. You are, you and me, you're kingdom people. And Jesus, well, and we get into eschatology here, but, but generally speaking, we understand Jesus come once. Jesus seems to be going to come again. He's either set up this kingdom, has set it up, will set it up. There'll be this earthly kingdom, and there'll be this kingdom of God that will reign. And that kingdom, and this is the point of that whole prophecy, is to understand that that kingdom is coming and God will reign and he's superior. He, the one true God, raises kings up, puts kings down. He's the one that establishes. And ultimately, his kingdom, whenever it comes, will be the final kingdom, the kingdom that will reign. And you can be in that kingdom of God, participate in that kingdom of God right now. That's the whole point. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and, and, and fragrant incense. And, and the king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings, a revealer of mystery. How do I know that? Since you are able to reveal this mystery yourself. 
Now, he acknowledges he's the one true God. What's very interesting, Nebuchadnezzar still not ready to come to that one true God. He says, man, this is the God of God. This is the Lord of all the kings. This is the one God, the God. And man, I want all the blessings he can shed on me. So Daniel, come close, but I don't need that God. We could make a sub point here that I think is worth making. That when the king saw Daniel doing his thing, the king knew there was a God. Just like... When people see you living a life empowered by the Holy Spirit, they'll go, wow. Isn't that what Jesus said? Let them see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And and Daniel has a huge advantage over all the magicians and the conjurers and the Chaldeans, all the guys in his office. All the guys in the workplace, he's got a huge advantage. And and let me point it out, it's the same advantage that you have at work. And that is, he has a personal relationship with God. And the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the providence of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel said, I have a request And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Daniel's faith in the one true God was not a hindrance but an asset in his work just like yours is. We we need to make sure, and gosh, we talk about this a lot, and, and maybe it catches on after a while, that we understand our faith is a deeply personal matter, but it's not a private matter. You have a personal relationship with the creator God of the universe. And this is indeed that. It's, it's personal. It's one-on-one. But it's not private. It's not designed to be something between you and God that, that you restrict either Sunday morning or teaching a Sunday school class or accountability group or whatever it is. It's, it's a deeply personal matter, but it's not a private matter because that relationship is to infect every area of your life. And, and I, understand, I understand the thought process. I'm just telling you, the strongest asset you have when you go into the office tomorrow is a relationship with Christ, just like Daniel. But by all indications, humanly, the other guys were better trained, sharper, all this. But God was indwelling Daniel. It was his greatest asset in the marketplace. Daniel understood, and there's probably four or five big points we can get out of this. One of the things I really do love is that Daniel seemed to have a pattern of saying, when have these guys involved in my life, and when things come, I'm going to have enough discernment to go, "Eh, that's something only God can do, so I'll let him do it. Up here's something I can do, I'll do it. And he understood that, that this whole understanding of God and who he is was not something that was a liability, nor was it something that God owed him. But it was a gift that God gave him. So that it wasn't. It was, hey, not me. Oops. Not only not me, though God gave it to me, don't even think for a second I deserved it. Because everything I have is from God. Well, we pick up the story there next week. Next week I'll be here. We'll be taking a look at at Daniel chapter 3. Because in the midst of all of this, and if you... 
though the, the other guys, the magicians, conjurers, they're all, their lives are spared. They had a death sentence, but their lives are spared as well. You would think, man, they'd be beating a Daniel. Man, that Daniel, Daniel, thank you, man. That's awesome. But all of a sudden, that prejudice and jealousy, that arises. And now Daniel faces yet a, another test in his walk with God. Well, we're going to pause. If you're over in the, in the conference center, the guys are going to come. Matthew or Brian are going to come and close your time together. Here in the chapel, Paul's going to come and lead us in our time of communion. The band come back and lead us in our time of worship. Father, thank you for this amazing and awesome truth. God, thank you that you love us and you care for us and, and, and you provided for us wisdom and, and insight through your spirit that you, the creator God, indwell us. And Father, now we just pray that we could count our blessings and become men and women students of praise. We pray that to you in Christ's name.